Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today on Millennial. What would we call our own memoir? Mine is Overthink, Spiral, Repeat. How to motivate yourself with anxiety, but make everyone else think you've got your shit under control. Oh, cool. So it's like a self-help book. Sounds inspiring, (laughs) except not at all. I mean, it's nice to get a little bit of context, but to your point, it's never going to be analyzed in the same way that two fans sitting down together would analyze it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I want to fuck Edward. He is so damn hot. You're never going to hear that on the official Twilight podcast. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) J.K. Rowling is a turf. You're never going to hear that on the official Harry Potter podcast. That's why we go to (laughs) MuggleCast. And if they walked in here without a tie, they would get gaveled down in a heartbeat. I see she didn't mention pants. Very interesting. I guess you can walk in pantsless and (laughs) get away with it. Full on Winnie the Pooh it (laughs) in the House of Representatives in Missouri. (laughs) Depends on the day, I guess. Welcome to Millennial, the home of pretend adulting and fire talk. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Speaking of Andrew's pun, we wanted to weigh in on the gas stove debate. I don't know if any of you listening have seen this on the internet. It's been a hot button issue, no pun intended. As with most things that end up getting conflated online, it seems to have all stemmed from a bit of a misunderstanding. So what happened was there was a U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commissioner who gave an interview with Bloomberg. And in that interview, he stated that gas stoves could potentially be a health hazard and that one day gas stoves could even be banned. And that is where people kind of took issue with this, because I guess like, you know, you can't touch people's gas stoves, just like people don't want you to touch their guns, which I guess I kind of get it. Both are kind of part of people's identities in some way, or (laughs) they have like physical attachment to inanimate objects in their houses. And it kind of got so conflated that the chairman of the organization had to hop onto Twitter and clarify that contrary to recent reports, nobody was actually looking to ban gas stoves in the country and that they had no proceeding to do so in the first place. So everybody's gas stoves are safe. Oh, good. Nobody freak out. Oh, good. Don't have to switch to electric if you don't want to. But the reality of the situation is, is that there has been some research that indicates that emission from gas stoves can be hazardous. And so, you know, the Consumer Product Safety Commission is looking to figure out a few ways to reduce the related indoor air quality hazards. So that is not false. But what is false is that the government is looking to take away your gas stoves. (laughs) But this is what conservatives (laughs) like to do, right? They like to play up this false narrative that, like you said, the left's going to take your guns away. They're going to take your stoves away. You know, they're impeding on everything that you love about America And it's just not true. But also, New York, the states of New York and California are also considering this idea of requiring new homes 
to have electric stoves. So no more gas stoves in new homes. But I'm 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 sure that after you close on your new home, you would be able to sell that electric stove and replace it with a gas stove. It's your house. You can do what you want. You know, it's just such a stupid thing. This was like debated online for a week. It's going to be one of these things we look back on at the end of the year and be like, can you believe there was actually concern around (laughs) the government taking our freaking gas stoves? It's just so stupid. We're going to have to remember this for the end of year episode. This December. I got you. I already got a note at the bottom (laughs) of our doc here. 2023 in review. Love it. Line item A, (laughs) gas stoves. But I will say, in defense of gas stoves, chefs actually prefer them. I had an electric stove in one of my apartments. I didn't like it. I didn't like the look of it. I thought it was a little more difficult to cook with. There's something a little more satisfying about a gas stove, and I think it's easier to control. I guess that makes sense for chefs because it's probably easier to flambe on a gas stove. I mean, you could do it with a um, like a torch. Mm-hmm. Why would mm-hmm. you do that if you could just have the open fire right there? I will also say, not that I'm against, you know, bettering the environment, but a huge bonus in favor of gas stoves is that they don't go out when the electricity does. Yeah. And that's been a huge saving grace. For me, anytime the power has gone out, which it has gone out quite a bit in the last couple of years, specifically in California. Fair. So at least I know I can cook on my gas stove. Like, I know it's, it's, it's honestly, it is really easy for people to say, oh, just get, you know, an air fryer and you can do everything. It's like, yes, but the air fryer will not work if there's no power. So, you know what will? The barbecue outside and my gas stove. Right. I mean, we rely on electricity in the house for most things at this point. So it is nice kind of like as a backup plan to have this alternate energy source. I've never had a gas stove. I've only ever had electric. No. Wow. Even in in my current place, which is, you know, it it was built at a time when everything was gas. Um, And for some reason, I don't know why the previous owner did this and I just didn't bother to change it. Um, they, They installed an electric stove but my furnace is gas. Oh. So I've got I've got both like things usually going those on two here. go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> like if you have a gas furnace then you usually have like a gas. Stove. Yeah, but no they they installed uh, an electric one. Well, that's the stupid conservative talking point of the last week. Stay tuned for whatever they claim Dems are going to take away next week. Socks maybe? Dems want to take away your socks. Although there's some stupid going on for the Dems, too. In some real political news, we have an update about Biden and those classified documents. As of this point, the White House has now made four disclosures of documents discovered um, between his old office, um, between his home. And it seems like... (laughs) They make these disclosures, and then a few days later, they find another set of documents. Unfortunately, this is not lending a lot of credibility to the White House around the way that this is being handled. Um, Merrick Garland has already appointed a special counsel to look into this, Um Adam Schiff was saying that these documents need to be reviewed for potential national security threats. It's really just not a good look for the Biden White House, especially given 
all of the talking points that the White House came out with about Trump and his classified documents. Clusterfuck. Now, again, these two situations are not the same because the Biden White House is cooperating and handing things over um, and not needing to be subpoenaed in order to do so. But still not a good look, especially as 2024 is, you know, really just right around the corner. We all know that election season in this country is perpetual. So people are already going to be kicking off campaigns for next year here in the spring. So this is just continuing to be very embarrassing for the president, for the White House, for the Democratic Party, and also, quite frankly, fucking frustrating. Yeah, because we were shitting on Trump for doing this. And now our Mm -hmm. own guy did the same thing as VP. It does make you wonder, is this a little more common than we've ever known? If the two most recent presidents, now Biden's docs are from his time as VP. But if the two most recent presidents have been holding on to classified docs from their time in the White House, how many other presidents have done this? Has Bush? Has Obama? Has Clinton? I mean, we just we don't know at this point. And I think given that the last two have been found guilty of this, we should not be surprised if we hear that other presidents on the left or right have done this as well. Maybe it was because of sloppy bookkeeping. They accidentally took the docs when uh, this whole story was developing around Trump. Some reporting explained that when Trump left the office, it was chaotic. They just grabbed anything in sight. That seemed to be the explanation for why Trump did this. And also, you get the sense he would like to hold on to some of these. Biden, we don't really have answers yet. They haven't said why these docs ended up in Biden's house. With Trump, too, it was his insistence on working half the time from Mar-a-Lago, mm. which we've never really seen a president do that in our lifetime. Like, they're usually just chilling at the White House. Yeah. So um, I think that in in their case for better or worse it was definitely a huge oversight on whoever said that he could and also whoever didn't keep track of everything that was being moved over there and we have to remember too trump was trying to claim that those documents were actually declassified because he, he thought said so he said so that's <laughs> right i they are declassified i declare bankruptcy telepathically <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, Biden's not doing that. So that's better, but still not great. But like we said last week, people aren't going to care about the nuance. They don't care. It's just both of them had classified docs. So it's not a big deal that Trump did it. End of story to them. All right. Well, getting into another maybe whoopsie from somebody that a lot of people on the left like, let's talk about Prince Harry. And I want to turn this into a larger discussion about believing what we what we read in memoirs. So Prince Harry published his memoir, Spare, and it's been doing incredibly well. So this book comes out and uh, people started noticing several errors in the book. And I'm just going to run through a few of them quickly. First, Harry wrote that King Henry VI was his great, 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 great grandfather. However, readers took to social media to point out why that was an impossibility, because Henry VI had only one son, Edward of Westminster, who died in battle at age 17 before he could have any of his own children. 
Oops. <laughs> Elsewhere in the book, Harry claimed he offered to buy Meghan's father, Thomas, a first class ticket from Mexico to the UK on Air New Zealand. The line went, Air New Zealand, first class, booked and paid for by Meg. But a spokesperson for Air New Zealand said after the book came out that the airline had never operated flights between Mexico and Great Britain and that they only offer business premier fares, not first class. In another example, Harry said he was in school when he found out his great grandmother, the Queen Mother, died in March 2002. But photos from the days leading up to her death and the day after showed that the prince was actually on a ski trip in Switzerland. And finally, in the list we're going through here today, Prince Harry said Princess Diana bought him an Xbox as a gift in 1997. However, the Xbox itself did not come out into 2001, and they were not sold in England until 2002. So people think maybe he meant PlayStation. Some of these are bigger errors than others. But I personally am just shocked that when you as the publisher, I don't really blame Harry for these mistakes. I blame the publisher because when you are going to be publishing what is sure to be one of the biggest books of the year, you need to be vetting everything in there multiple times. Where were the fact checkers? Yeah, that's the thing, because honestly, looking at all of these, they can kind of be explained away, right? You know, with the with the, you know, airline story, he got the airline wrong. He misremembered the airline, right? Um, With you know, him saying that King Henry VI was a great-great-grandfather. That could have been a family story where somebody misinformed him about something and he just assumed it was real and went with it. Um, And like you said about the Xbox, could have been he meant PlayStation. Um, Even sometimes when you're remembering things that, that happened to you, Pam actually brought this up during the Variety Show, I think, Every time you remember something, you're not actually remembering the event. You're remembering the last time that you remembered it. So even his memory about when the Queen Mother died, like that could have been a genuine mistake. Right. So this is 100% on the fact checkers. I agree. Yeah, Yeah, I totally agree with both of you. I, I think like, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, all of these examples, I haven't looked at any more examples Personally, I'm sure that somebody out there is combing through the memoir now with a fine tooth comb. But like, just for the purposes of the show, everything we brought up is like, I don't know. I don't think it's like that big in the grand scheme of things. There's such small details that don't really like make a big difference. But the issue is, is that when you are writing a memoir, it's supposed to be fact. And so, yes, this is on the fact checkers, if anything. But then also it it actually ends up calling into question the validity of everything else in there. Mm-hmm. Right. So for be- better or worse, this becomes a bigger problem, even if it's not a big deal that he mixed up the Xbox, like the PlayStation with the Xbox, you know, or he got the airline wrong. Yeah. Anybody that's looking to nitpick is going to say, well, like, these might not be huge factual errors, but like, what else is in factual? It affects, it negatively impacts the authority of the book because like you said you start to wonder what else might be wrong and you especially wonder that when you consider that these stories in the book are from harry's side so if he's misremembering the video game system he got his family history where he was when he found out when his great-grandmother died 
what else is actually not true? And we might actually never get answers to most of it because we know that the royal family typically does not respond to stuff like this, say an entire explosive book that puts them in a very bad light. And we might never get a book from Prince William. We'll never get other books that are just like from within the royal family. Pam, are you reading the book? Um, I will be. It's funny. I just got a notification from my library that says the audiobook is up. So I'll borrow that and probably listen to it over the next week or so. People have been sharing that one audiobook clip. Did you hear that one? About his penis. I was going (laughs) to ask you, what was the penis and the cream stuff about? (laughs) Yeah. So so also, um, Steve Colbert interviewed him on um, his show, and they kind of went into that a little bit. But I guess he had gone on a, a hiking excursion in Antarctica and wasn't wearing the proper... Uh, protective clothing and so he got frost bite on his penis and somebody told him to use a specific cream and he was like oh that's what my mom used to use <laughs> it's just really <laughs> that's one of those things it's like okay did this have to be in the book i know i'm like did that need no. well i mean like Listen, it's a little color. It adds shock value. You're not expecting somebody that's proper to be talking about their penis openly. But I just think that whoever like decided to include it kind of did him dirty by relating it back to his mother. I guess, but it's not like Prince Harry didn't have final sign-off of, of every little thing that was in this book. I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they thought it was going to be more wholesome than it landed. Maybe his editors were like, oh, Trust me, people will talk about this if you draw a line between the penis cream and your mother. <laughs> it's not. T- <laughs> it's the Elizabeth Arden cream for anybody that's curious, which is like a staple in many makeup bags. It has been for a really long time. It's kind of like a grab all cream. It's been around in the market for a while. So it was like a weird random penis cream. I'm sure Elizabeth Arden is having a field day. I really hope their sales <laughs> Yeah, what is somebody from BuzzFeed going to go and freeze their cock and then try to repair it with this cream to prove Harry was right or wrong? Hmm. Andrew, do it for the show. (laughs) That's true. You're the only one here who has a penis. So for science, go up into the mountains and freeze my dick and be like, this reminds me of Princess Diana. (laughs) Can't wait to write about it in my memoir. So in light of all of these errors that have been called out and discussed online, the ghostwriter of the book, J.R. Moringer, has responded to the feedback. In a post on Twitter in the days following the backlash, he quoted Mary Carr, the author of The Art of Memoir, who said, The line between memory and fact is blurry, between interpretation and fact. There are inadvertent mistakes of those kinds out the wazoo. And he just posted this quote on Twitter with no comment. So clearly he, the ghostwriter, is aware that, you know, people are are criticizing some of the in a bit of the info in the book. I thought this would open up an interesting discussion on when we all read memoirs. Are we believing everything in there? When we read memoirs, there are quoted conversations. And like I'm reading Bono's right now from U2 and he's quoting conversations from 20, 30, 40 years ago. Bruce did the same in his. And I've always thought like, 
do you really remember this conversation? No matter who it is, if it's 20, even 10 years yeah. ago, do you have a clear memory of the conversation? And I just don't believe it. So I believe that they are most of the time paraphrasing these conversations. But then these conversations become fact because they're being printed in a book. Yeah. I will say if, just like from a purely grammar nerd stylistic approach, I haven't picked up a memoir in, the, in a while, but, you know, obviously people have been sharing screenshots of the Prince Harry memoir. Um, I think it's very smart that they use a combination of italicized dialogue and quoted dialogue because quoted dialogue is supposed to be more direct if you're talking about like what is straight pop proper grammar but italicized dialogue you the inferences is, is that you're remembering the conversation and so it's a little bit safer so i think whoever came like decided to go that route was very smart especially because you know despite the fact that the palace doesn't seem like they're going to be releasing a statement or coming out with their own version of events. I think it's really smart to err on the side of caution for certain things like that, since this is kind of like a spicy tell-all, but... I didn't know they did that. You're saying some are italicized? Yeah, some conversations are italicized and some are quoted. I wonder how common that is. I don't think I've seen that in any memoirs. Yeah, you know what? I I mean, like, I would have to get up, but I do have, like, a couple of memoirs on my bookshelf. I don't... I would have to, like, flip through them to see, and I haven't picked one up in a while, so I don't know if that's more common than not. Yeah. Maybe read like maybe a memoir or two like every couple of years. And I think when we read these memoirs, we also just sort of suspend our disbelief a little bit because, you know, everything described in the book isn't going to be a perfect memory. Because like you two were saying earlier, your memory is only as accurate as the last time you recalled that memory. And perception plays a really big role. You're hearing about a bunch of events from one person's point of view. And just like you can see, if you look at reporting of any news story or any kind of anecdotal experience that people have had, people will walk away with very differing interpretations of what exactly happened. So I think that's okay. You just have to bear that in mind when you're reading a memoir. Like I recently just finished reading Tom Felton's memoir and I thoroughly enjoyed it and loved it. And I believe him in terms of his perception of all the events that he discussed, but I'm sure that if another cast member wrote about similar events, they might remember them differently. Did he write about cream on a frozen cock or? No, no, no. he did not. He did. He did write about um, trying and failing to steal porn, though. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Or are we going to say Pam? <laughs> so maybe that's uh, no, I was going to agree with Laura, like, and I was just going to say how many times have we like, for example, gotten to, into an argument with somebody and then you say you said and then they go, I never said that, even though you are convinced that they did say that. So yep. I have a warped memory. It must be really hard to fact check stuff like that, honestly. Yeah, it's like impossible. there are certain things obviously that you can fact check, like something like when um, especially for a public figure, a very public figure, knowing exactly where Prince Harry was, like around the time the Queen Mother died, like that's easy to fact check. But something like a private conversation, unless you're gonna be interviewing the people that he had that conversation with, which in this case they won't. 
you know, you only have to, you only have like one person's word to go by. And then this record of history becomes fact. And that kind of terrifies me, no matter who is writing the book, just because they are kind of altering history and placing it in a light that looks good on them. And so in a way, I feel bad for the royal family, even though some things they've done are unforgivable. I feel bad that somebody can just come in and tell their version of history and suddenly that becomes the record. That's what's going to be sourced in Wikipedia. That's what's going to be cited when there's reporting on on something 10 years from now. It's like he just made I'm not saying it's he's lying, but even if he is or if the truth is embellished, that now is fact. That's that's all true. Are you afraid that some former MuggleNet staffers are going to come out and write their own memoirs, Andrew, and paint you in a bad light? I'm covering for myself for later. See, I said this on Millennial 902. I said people could do this. It was very concerning then and very concerning today. And also just like when people write about conversations in books, they color the scene, right? They say, you know, it was a dark and stormy night and we were sitting a few feet away from each other and Prince William had a little... Uh, bowl of cashews next to him and he was eating them one by one and I always thought that was strange and then we got into our conversation and he looked at me with a furrowed brow and like like you were saying earlier I think Laura like we have when we're recalling conversations we have different interpretations of what each other are feeling in that moment right Harry may have seen a furrowed brow. Maybe William was just holding in a sneeze. <laughs> this isn't something he, he, he writes in the book, but I'm just saying. Or this a is fart. Or a fart. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. The whole thing stresses me out. I did acid 10 years ago. And I, this is, I think, the, the acid effect. I think about stuff like this. Wait, I didn't know you did acid. Yeah, you knew that. You no, knew that. I saved that story for your memoir. <laughs> <laughs> I knew about the other stuff. I didn't know about the acid, though. I did acid once and shrooms like three times, maybe. I would never do it today. I'm I'm too mentally unstable for that today. <laughs> but back when I was like 22, <laughs> I still had it together. <laughs> Don't do shrooms or LSD, everybody. It's it's not no, good. No, it's not worth it. <laughs> no. Any other thoughts on on memoirs in general? It sounds like you two don't read them too often. I I said that, and then I remembered that I also read Tom Felton's book, and I also oh. read Jeanette McCurdy's uh, memoir from last year, which I enjoyed both of them. I read them for people that I'm interested in, like me too, Barack and Michelle, any of the Harry Potter cast, Hillary. You know, pe- people that I'm into. Yeah, it is super yeah. interesting to get their recollections on their life so far. I think memoirs are great if you consider them to be like like sitting across from a friend that's telling you the story about their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I think you can tell when it's like something is completely like it sounds too out of this world to be real. But for the most part, I mean, if you're reading memoirs for somebody you like, you're probably going to trust that they're version of events is fairly accurate it's like if you if we sat down and read donald trump's memoir we'd probably all think it was full of shit (laughs) yeah right absolutely but you might think that like 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 any of the like both of the obamas have memoirs that we probably like trust their word on what happened more than we trust trump's so 100 percent. 
But if we were conservatives, it would be the total opposite. We believe Trump, so we don't believe Obama. <laughs> right, exactly. There's probably more evidence to support trusting Obamas, but uh, yeah, like that they include their sources. <laughs> yeah, they have fucking footnotes, and also he hasn't been caught in 4K actively trying to gaslight everybody. Yeah. We got to be careful what we say next week. We're going to be talking about classified docs at the Obama house. Laughs uncomfortably. If we were to write our own memoirs one day, let's say we're famous and we're like, it's time to recall my story and I want to set the record straight in case I die and, and my enemies decide to try to spin the truth. What would we call our own memoir? My memoir would be titled <laughs> Always Cold, Never Satisfied, Literal and Metaphorical Memories <laughs> from Life as a Podcaster. <laughs> I am always freaking cold, literally. And then I can be a cold bitch, metaphorically. So many layers. <laughs> that is poetic. Oh, thank you. I think you should write it. Always cold, <laughs> never satisfied, coming to bookstores in 2045. Mine, I think, is a little more self-explanatory. It's not as creative as yours. Um, mine is overthink, spiral, repeat, how to motivate yourself with anxiety, but make everyone else think you've got your shit under control. Oh, cool. So it's like a self-help book. That sounds inspiring. <laughs> Except not at all. <laughs> <laughs> mine would be... Off the record, all the things I should have said but never did. Ooh. Ooh. That's a captivating tagline. I now love I'm going to spill all the tea. <laughs> that's going to sell some books. We should take that tagline and use it for After Dark, henceforth. Ooh. <laughs> Rebrand After Dark to Off the Record with Millennial. <laughs> <laughs> off the Record, After Dark. I was thinking about who would narrate my audiobook too. I don't know if I would want to do that. I give props to any author who narrates their own book because that just seems like a ton of work and you make a mistake, you make the tiniest mistake, there's somebody listening and they say back up, back up. I it would just be really stressful. I would want to do it actually. You would? Yeah. Yeah, I mean like I feel like a it, like assuming that we'd all be writing these way in the future, I would just think like first of all I've been training my whole life for this. Look at all the podcasting I've done. True. Second of all, I, I mean I just always th I've always thought it would be fun to do an audiobook, so why not do mine? And I know people like it it is more enjoyable when you're hearing the person read their own memoir because it adds it another layer another layer to the story. I totally agree with that. And you can also listen for how they are reading their own words. Like, do you sense a little more emotion in their voice when they're going over a particularly powerful passage? Like, is something affecting them as they read back their own story in the moment? I think that's always fun to listen out for. But my serious answer for a narrator for my memoir, Always Cold, Never Satisfied, would be Tom Hanks. He's got a great voice. And then the not serious answer would be Elton John, because it's not serious because I feel like you can't have an English person read an American's memoir. But it is funny because he's gay. 
Why is it funny? Because he's gay. Like, oh, Andrew hired a gay person to read his gay memoir. I don't know. You know, what? speaking of like British people, I think that like um, Julie Andrews, but doing Lady Whistledown would be great to narrate oh, a memoir. Yeah. Because everything would sound so much more salacious. That would be fun. You know, I... I'm going to mention Tom Felton again here because I listened to his audiobook. That's how I read it. And he's a really engaging reader. Um, and he just knows how to strike the exact right tone between comedy and sometimes being a little more serious. And he, you know, dives into some, you know, deeper, uh, tougher topics in his book. And I thought that he handled the reading of it really, really well. So I would trust him to... Uh, narrate, overthink, spiral, repeat for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately, we probably will not be able to have even the option to narrate our own memoirs because I read recently that Apple has started using AI to read books for them for their audiobook store. So we're kind of shit out of luck on that front. The robots are coming for us again. All right. Well, before we get to another story, a nice like crossover fandom story, just wanted to remind everybody that for the first time in years, we have introduced a new tier on our Patreon. We did this because advertising is unpredictable and it looks like we're going to have less advertising in 2023. So we're looking to become less dependent on ads going forward. And it would be amazing to largely replace the need for advertising. It's always been stressful and we just like to eliminate it entirely. So we're using this new executive producer tier to help us do that. This tier includes all the other benefits on our Patreon, plus a couple new ones. First and foremost, you will have live access to our planning meetings via a new Discord channel. So you'll be able to actually listen in live as Laura, Pam, and I are talking about the following week's episode twice a month. We actually just did our first one this past Friday for executive producers, and it was a lot of fun, right? It was exactly what we promised people. It was fun. It was unhinged. It was bitchy. It was all kinds of things. It really was. And we even got into some of the tea that we're going to be sharing in this week's After Dark. So we give a little bit of a tease for our executive producers. So they got even more of a preview. We promised 30 to 45 minutes. This one was 52 minutes long. And I'd say that's probably going to be the average around 40 to 50 minutes because we just end up talking and having a good time. So it's like another episode of the podcast in a way, but more intimate and behind the scenes than ever. And you will also get a personalized video thank you message from one of the three of us for pledging at this tier. And then later in winter, you you will have an area in our Discord where you can pitch your own ideas whenever you want. Lots of big benefits there. This tier is $20 a month. Of course, we'd love if you supported us at any tier. So maybe you can't afford that tier, but we also have two, five, and $10 tiers available with lots of benefits that we've spoken about many times over the years. So please check them all out at patreon.com slash millennial. And Laura mentioned the After Dark. We do have a great After Dark lined up for this week. We can get into that a little later in today's episode, though. So for our next story, we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons. We talk quite a bit about board games on this show, but I don't think we've ever actually touched on this one. And it's a big one. And uh, fans are actually kind of really upset with Wizards of the Coast, who is the uh, parent company for Dungeons and Dragons, along with Hasbro. And this animosity stems from some major changes that 
they want to make to the open gaming license for Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, the parent company has since actually walked back a lot of what was leaked from this new gaming license that was going to be proposed as a result of the backlash from fans. But before we get into all of that, uh, Laura actually has played Dungeons and Dragons. And so I wanted... Nerd! <laughs> actually, right. I'm kind of jealous. I've always wanted to try it. It sounds really fun. Yeah, yeah it does. For, y'all, for the, is it good? Yes, we can start a campaign, y'all. Can we? <laughs> yes! That could be a variety show. It could. Although I will warn you, campaigns last a very fucking long time. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's a lot. True. A whole story is built, right? It's like... I mean, I don't know, y'all. Me me and some friend, me and Mark and some friends started a campaign in like 2020 that's still not done. Um, <laughs> part of that is because we've taken like long breaks here and there. Um, but it, it's been pretty long. And when you sit down for a single session, it can be like four or five hours minimum. Wow. I know people who go longer. So wow. we'll, we'll chat about it. We'll chat about the logistics. But um, for for anyone who hasn't played or isn't familiar, um, Dungeons and Dragons is a fantasy tabletop role-playing game where you create your own characters and you are part of the story. Um, and you're able to make decisions about what will happen next in your story. So it is... Um, you know, kind of a, a creative landscape that in some cases is either provided by, you know, Wizards of the Coast. It's it's a, an official uh, campaign guidebook, but there are also a lot of unofficial campaign guidebooks out there that come from, you know, a lot of these fan publishers. But really, when you're playing the game, you're you have the freedom to kind of dictate how the story goes and what decisions you and the other players are going to make. Of course, you don't just get to make decisions and necessarily reap the best benefits of those decisions because everything is dependent on a dice roll. So <laughs> the dice will determine if, you know, the decision you make goes well or not. And it can be a really serious game. It can be really fun and silly. It can be any combination of the two. We've definitely done some crazy shit in our campaign, um, including playing Space Jam while we were in the middle of a goblin attack in a cave. Like, you can just do whatever the fuck <sighs> you, you want. Did you have to roll for that to see if you could play Space Jam or not? No, we just did it. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> we just did it. So back to the new story, like I said, when we were kind of teeing this segment up, uh, the original open gaming license was published back in 2000. And since then, it's allowed players and others to profit from unofficial content made from the game. So, you know, like Laura mentioned that Wizards of the Coast has their own guide and you can totally follow that. But there are a lot of people that create their own content for this too. Laura, what kind of unofficial content do people make for Dungeons and Dragons? Because it's quite a bit, right? There's a lot of stuff. So like I said, there's those unofficial campaign guides. There are videos of people just playing their campaigns. There are let's plays of campaigns. Um, there are unofficial apps, unofficial podcasts. There are there's fan art um, and even unofficial video games inspired 
by Dungeons and Dragons. And a lot of these creators are using things like Patreon, for example, to support their efforts. Um, Some of them are selling direct products. Mark and I even had little tiny statues made of our D&D characters when we started playing. So there's just a ton of content and product that you can find from, you know, fan-based creators who are not officially linked at all to Wizards of the Coast. And to just help tee up where we're going with this, a lot of these like podcast fan art, let's play video streams, you see that in a lot of fandoms, but unofficial campaigns, that first one, people spend weeks, months, years building out campaigns. And it's not just like typing out uh, an outline in Microsoft Word. They are creating graphics, maps, detailed backstories. I mean, these campaigns are works of art, massive works of art. Yeah. So you really have to appreciate just how committed people are to Dungeons and Dragons, especially when they create a campaign. That is a whole world they are building. Yeah. And it really highlights a point that I think is super important to understand about this community, this fandom, is that D&D would not be what it is without its fan base. And I don't just mean that in terms of its commercial success. I mean that in terms of how deep and wide the lore of D&D is. One, because wizards, like there's a lot of the fantasy lore that, you know, Dungeons and Dragons uses that they don't even own. They don't own elves They don't own goblins. They literally have a campaign called Called of Cthulhu. They don't fucking own Cthulhu. (laughs) So they draw inspiration from a lot of fantasy lore. And on top of that, not to say that there isn't original content that comes out of D&D, but on top of that, you have this super dedicated fan base that has really contributed to making this fandom and this world so much richer and more detailed, it would not be what it is without the fans and without these unofficial creations. So all this to say it was a bit of a slap in the face or a huge slap in the face for fans when some of the terms of the new open gaming license were leaked online. Uh, Specifically, one of the bigger points that a lot of fans pointed to is that the new OGL would have sorted anybody who profits from creating Dungeons and Dragons content into three revenue tier sets. And that would have then determined whether or not they would have had to pay any royalties to Wizards of the Coast as a result of any profits they make. Um, in addition to this, they also included some license back language that alluded to Wizards of the Coast being able to use any original content created by fans for free. So essentially free labor, even though, as Andrew pointed out earlier, um, the amount of work that people put into creating these campaigns far exceeds Um, anything that Wizards of the Coast is probably doing on the back end these days, because it's basically like already free advertising for them. 
Um, so to uh, give you guys a little bit more perspective as to the kind of stuff that they were proposing, here is a little quote from the leaked OGL. This is talking about specifically the profit tiers. The initiate tier includes anyone with at least one licensed product that earns $50,000 or less, while the intermediate tier ranges from above that to $750,000. Those making more fall into the expert tier and must pay 20% or 25% in royalties for anything above $750,000. This is coming from Comic Book Resource. The way that this was framed by Wizards of the Coast is that the tiers and who would end up having to pay fees was only going to affect the people that were earning the most from their Dungeons and Dragons original content. When in reality, uh, there's no way that small businesses that also had, um, you know, unlicensed, like new creative materials wouldn't have been affected as well. So there was a huge argument on that front, too. This reminds me, we were having a conversation about fandom law with a guest last year. Yes. And they were saying that as long as you're not too successful on Patreon, WB will continue letting you do what you want. But if you get really, really successful, get ready for WB to start saying, hey, we can't let you run free like you have been. And a really important piece of context to consider here as we're thinking about all of this is that Dungeons and Dragons uh, exceeded $1 billion in revenue in 2021, according to Hasbro's own um, revenue reports from that time. So they ain't hurting. Yeah. And this really, you know, with that number in mind, you know, they'll... You know, you'll see excuses coming from Wizards of the Coast about this, about how, you know, people aren't buying guidebooks as much anymore because they're relying more on PDF copies. So it's not making them as much money. And yet, you know, they hit this really major financial milestone in 2021. They also have a subscription service called Dungeons Dragons Beyond, um, which is something we'll chat about here in a moment and why that's important. Um, But they certainly have done very, very well, especially thanks to the pandemic and thanks to Stranger Things. Like you mentioned this new subscription, like I was going to say, why don't they just come up with other revenue sources? I'm sure they can come up with things, create higher tiers like we are within their subscription service. It's like you have had this incredible Dungeons and Dragons community for a couple decades now built on this trust between the original creators and the fan base that the fans can continue to play in this world to create uh, content to sell this content so they can be compensated for the, their time. You can't pull the rug out from under them all of a sudden. And how does this look on you when you decide to ch- uh, start charging creators within D&D? Yeah. I wonder if there was like new leadership or something that came in and really was not connected with the community because it seems like such an abrupt change. It really does. I hate to say that. Well, I mean, I don't think that Anybody wouldn't believe this, but I think a lot of it is greed. And I wouldn't be surprised, too, if it's a little bit of a strong arming uh, by the studios that are going into business with Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro. Uh, The Dungeons and Dragon movie has long eluded many a studio that have tried to actually get it to the big screen. 
there is a Dungeons and Dragons movie coming out within the next couple of months. And it's kind of like a miracle that one is actually going to happen because, like I said, the rights to a movie have passed from studio to studio for quite a while. And as a result of the movie coming out, they've also just greenlit uh, an entirely new TV series. So I think that it makes sense that since they're already anticipating an increase in interest in the game from people that have no experience with it, but then go and watch the movie and think that sounds really fun. I want to play this tabletop game with my friends. They're looking for a way to kind of make more money off of potentially new fans. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. And the thing is, they would have anyway. That's such a good point. If things continue going the way they're going, I could absolutely see the D&D community boycotting that movie. Mm-hmm. because they've already shown that they have a lot of pull. Um, a Wizards of the Coast employee actually spoke out and emailed multiple D&D community leaders. That email authenticity was actually confirmed by Gizmodo. And um, they asserted that leadership, one, didn't inform um, Wizards of the Coast employees of the new um, OGL until after the holidays. So that's like shortly before they were originally planning to roll this out. And that in response to the backlash to the community from the community, they were hoping that the community forgets, moves on, and that they can still push this through. Um, the this employee also alleged that um, Wizards of the Coast were monitoring Dungeons and Dragons beyond subscription cancellations to gauge how bad the backlash was, <laughs> and <laughs> multiple popular D and D personalities went on Twitter and tweeted that people should cancel their subscriptions, and according to this source, allegedly. There were so many cancellations that Wizards of the Coast, you know, allegedly started scrambling to adjust their messaging around this. And to that point, Laura, it didn't take them long to release a statement. The statement actually came out a couple of days ago on January 13th, and it was basically just updating fans on the state of the new open gaming license, which they called a draft so not necessarily a final draft so that was pretty good PR move on their point um this statement said quote what it will not contain is any royalty structure it also will not include the license back provision that some people were afraid was means for us to steal work that thought never crossed our minds under any new OGL you will own the content you create we won't and getting back to the point of all of the studios that now have a vested interest in D&D. The statement also said that the new OGL that they're working on is meant to protect themselves slash film and TV partners from claims of stolen content due to, quote, coincidental similarities. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I would be concerned as a creator, a fan creator within the community that a potential movie could steal my work. I mean, there's a ton of campaigns out there, but there's a chance that Hollywood could be looking at some of these campaigns and drawing inspiration from them. So the answer there, and this is something we talk about all the time. I mean, as Harry Potter fans, um, you know, I'm very frustrated that WB does not 
really take into account what the fans want, their lives would be so much easier if they just did what the fans wanted or if they at least collaborated with the fans because we have good ideas. We know what we're talking about. We know this community and we know what's going to sell. So <laughs> if some if some studio is looking at some really popular D&D streamer and seeing, wow, this person has this character or this concept that's amazing why don't you fucking hire that person <laughs> or pay them to use the concept? It does sound that easy. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we're wrong, Laura. Maybe we're just flat out wrong. Maybe we don't know what the fans want. Maybe. Cause I, I just, it just doesn't. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you what they don't want. <laughs> and it was the last two fantastic beast movies. Yeah. They have spoken with their dollars and cursed child. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. As of right now, uh, there is no new official open gaming license that has been released. So there are still a lot of unknowns for fans, which is why everybody's kind of still on edge. Um, there is a new open gaming license coming, but jury's still out on when we will see it. And that basically brings us to the end of this story. But Lots of interesting factors at play here, for sure. And I expect that, like I said, with the movie coming out, we'll probably have an update soonish. Mm -hmm. They're probably going to want to get this set before that hits theaters. Yeah, it's it's a worrying story, not just for D&D creators and fans, but for anybody within a fandom who invests a lot of time in it. Because one day you could wake up in a studio... Yeah. Could say, hey, actually, you can't do that anymore. And if you continue to, we want a cut of your revenue. Yeah. I think about this a lot too, with like just because of what we do. For a long time, fans were leading the podcast movement specif specifically with regards to um, analysis based shows for uh, television and also like movie franchise and stuff. Obviously, like you guys have been doing that for a very long time. Um, but now you're starting to see more studios put out the official podcast for rewatch because they've noticed that there's a market for that and they're trying to make money in that sense. But imagine if all of them just like sent out cease and desists for you know, smaller mom, mom and pop podcasts, for lack of a better word, saying like, you guys can't make shows anymore unless you pay us a royalty to talk about our stuff. Yeah, it's interesting how that would play out. I mean, I think they might definitely have a case if you're making money off of it. If you're just any old Mary and Joe releasing a podcast about, let's say, The Last of Us, they probably don't care. I think when, when you're making money, that's that's when it might become a problem for them. I have to say, I don't listen to these official TV and movie analysis podcasts like HBO's The Last of Us podcast for The Last of Us TV show because it's all put through a sort of a strainer to weed out any sort of criticism. I would assume HBO's not going to produce a podcast that criticizes their own work. So that's why those podcasts are dead on arrival to me. And that's why the fan ones are always going to be very popular and um, important. Yeah. I'm a little biased, but I just think I don't know how you could listen to one of those and not wonder if there were cuts made and, and the honest opinions are being shared. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a time and a place for that. Like, you know, like a rewatch podcast right now are having a huge moment, obviously. Like, again, that's been a huge fan initiative for a long time. And now you're starting to see like X cast members launch uh, rewatch podcasts for shows that have long since been off the air. And it's nice to get a little bit of context. But to your point, it's never going to be analyzed in the same way that two fans sitting down together would analyze it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I want to fuck Edward. He is so damn hot. You're never going to hear that on the official Twilight podcast. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) J.K. Rowling is a turf. You're never going to hear that on the official Harry Potter podcast. That's why we go to Muggle cast. (laughs) And you right. Even even opinions that might even give a hint of criticism. Some producer is going to be listening to this, running it through 10 layers of people at WB asking, can we have this tiny bit of criticism? Like these shows, I guarantee you have to go through multiple sign offs. Fuck that. Fuck that. Such a good point. Preach. (laughs) Well, changing gears here, we're going to talk about something uh, else that is also infuriating, but for very different reasons. Um, last week, the Missouri House of Representatives revised its dress code for female legislators. Um, the new dress code will require women in the House um, to wear a jacket, blazer, or cardigan, aka no bare arms, because we know how, um, you know, appealing a bare shoulder is and how distracting that must be to the men who work in the Missouri House. Um, this addition <laughs> to the rules package was actually introduced by a woman, which like, fuck you, traitor. Um, her name <laughs> is <laughs> Republican Representative Ann Kelly. And even worse, initially, the proposal did not include cardigans as an option. Um, this changed when Democratic members pushed back by pointing out that requiring jackets and blazers would negatively impact pregnant women because, you know, jackets and blazers aren't really designed to fit people who are pregnant. What uh, Representative Kelly said on the floor was that she was hoping to align the women's dress code with the men's dress code. So she said men are required to wear a jacket, a shirt and a tie. Correct. And if they walked in here without a tie, they would get gaveled down in a heartbeat. If they walked in without a jacket, they would get gaveled down in a heartbeat. So we are so interested in being equal i see she didn't mention pants very interesting i guess you can walk in pants less and <laughs> get away full with on it. winnie the poet <laughs> in the house of representatives in missouri <laughs> depends depends on the day i guess um but really you know one issue i take here is that um basing a dress code for women on what a men's dress code looks like is just idiotic because our clothing options are very different. There is so much more variety in women's clothing for formal or professional attire than there is for men's clothing. So if you're pointing out, yeah, men have to wear a shirt, a tie, a jacket, and slacks, it's like, what else do they have? Mm -hmm. How can you compare the two? It's apples and oranges. Honestly, it's like... (laughs) If men want to start wearing cardigans, yeah. and, you know, cha- go ahead. They're comfy. 
Nobody really wants to wear a suit jacket. I want to wear a dream and a cardigan, just like Miley did when she hopped off the plane at LAX. (laughs) I think that you should live your best life and do that. Thank you. Cardigans are very cozy. I used to wear uh, vests. I went through a vest phase. Vests are really nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only other thing I can think of in terms of men's formal wear. But you usually wear that under a jacket. So Mm -hmm. it's not like an alternate option exactly. Not all the time anyway. I had a question too. I was wondering what would this legislative body do if they had a non-binary member? This just feels like a disaster waiting to happen because you have this House of Representatives, you have this chamber that is forcing like a wardrobe binary on people. To my knowledge, the current um, body of the House of Representatives, you know, there aren't any, you know, non-binary people in it right now, but there will be one day. It's inevitable that that will happen. What kind of fresh hell would they rain down on a on a non-binary person right. walking into the chamber who wasn't dressed the way that they thought they should be dressed. Missouri, traditionally red state, I can imagine them saying, well, you're non-binary. What was on your birth certificate? Yeah. That's the direction we want you to take. Exactly. And it's all so hypocritical because <laughs> what I love is that um, some of the the women in the Missouri House were really pushing back. And with their pushback, one of them pointed out that um, Ann Kelly, who uh, proposed this as part of the rules change, had herself been wearing a bright pink sequined blouse the <laughs> week before and called into question, okay, if me wearing a sleeveless blouse or a sleeveless dress is inappropriate how are your bright pink sparkly sequins okay that's nightwear (laughs) yeah and nobody called her out for it at the time because it doesn't fucking matter but (laughs) she thinks that she gets to be the one who makes the rules so you're opening yourself up to the same kind of critique when you do that something i wanted to point out here just to show how out of touch and out of pace this decision out of Missouri is, the United States House of Representatives actually relaxed its longstanding dress code for female members and reporters in 2017 to allow bare arms. Crazy to think that it was only in 2017 that it became okay for women to wear Uh, sleeveless blouses and dresses on the House floor. Um, But it was only that recently that that happened. It was actually Paul Ryan who relaxed that dress code, believe believe it or not. Um, And it was something that long predated, you know, him being in office. So it was a longstanding rule. Um, But the United States House did that under Republican leadership. And The United States Senate also followed suit and adopted this rule as well. So on a national level, we're moving forward when it comes to what's considered appropriate professional attire for women. But 
on the state level, at least in Missouri, we're moving backwards. Yeah. I love this picture of these House of um these female House of Representatives all on the steps of the Capitol. They're all like showing off their arms. Yeah. <laughs> now sleeveless. Yeah, they were calling it their right to bear arms. <laughs> yeah. As the founding fathers intended. Yep. Well, they probably didn't, but <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, I'm curious for your take on this. Is it easier for men to dress? generally yes ladies it is much easier (laughs) no i think it is because we do have that one look you wear the dress pants you wear the button-down dress shirt you wear the suit jacket maybe add in the vest and the tie and that's it it's very straightforward i mean guys in professional workplace environments all basically look the same Mm -hmm. you can maybe have a different pattern on your dress shirt and a different colored tie but that's where the variety starts and ends. And I would assume that most of our clothing is also probably a little looser fitting. Yeah, it probably has pockets too. We got lots of pockets that can fit a big old phone. Yeah, it's gotten a lot better in recent history with some brands. But in general, I feel like with women's clothing, you can't count on being able to use the pockets for fucking anything. (laughs) Sometimes they're fake, too. Sometimes they're just decorative pockets that don't yeah, actually so bad. do anything. It's like you could barely fit, like, your fingers up to the knuckle in the pocket. It's like, what am I going to put in there? That's crazy. What is the point of them, then? Like, I would be I would be devastated to not have pockets in, say, my jeans or dress mm-hmm. pants. How much would, like, if you needed to buy, like, a suit, right? Like, and you didn't want to spend a crazy amount of money, like, how much could you get a suit for right now? Oh God, I really don't know. But if I'm if I'm going to buy one, I'm probably going to Kohl's. They normally have some good deals on dress shirts. Like not not a three piece, just like a suit jacket and a pair of slacks. I I still don't know. I like maybe like sixty bucks. No, probably more than that. I I'd say probably around a hundred. A hundred. Yeah. Okay. And nobody's gonna judge you for it because it's all like you said, uniform. So there's right. probably less like thinking about it. It's not like, what brand are you wearing? Who are you wearing? Yeah. It's it, They all look the yeah. same. So, And you can mix and match those pieces and Definitely. you can use them again. Whereas I think in a lot of cases, women, they find themselves in situations where they are shopping for one particular event mm-hmm. and they may never wear that thing again, or they may wear it so infrequently that it wasn't worth the purchase. And the internet's so judgmental. Yeah. The first thought is, oh, they already wore that. They're wearing it again. How could they? Well, to wrap us up, I thought we could revisit um, some of our own experiences dealing with dress codes. Um, I think we can all agree that school dress codes often tend to be a load of horseshit, as can some workplace dress codes. Andrew, did you find anything about your high school? Well, so I remember a couple of dress codes issues coming up, not because of anything I was wearing, but there were some debates from time to time. My memory is kind of foggy in terms of the details. I do remember one friend of mine, uh, we went into high school one day and we were going to shoot a Michael Jackson music video for TV tech class. And he walks into school with a long black trench coat. And this is, you know, like a couple years after Columbine. It wasn't appropriate. So they made him take off the jacket. 
But um, yeah, I remember. I, I actually, I was able to look up my dress code for my high school. It's available online. And this, I think, is a good dress code. So your clothing cannot reinforce or increase marginalization or oppression of any group based on race, sex, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, ethnicity, religion, cultural observance, household income, or body type slash size. That's a good like yeah. coverall for um, a dress code. And I did notice here... And this one stood out to me because I don't think this one was always the case. Students may wear headwear such as hats. I distinctly remember in high school not being allowed to wear a hat. Nobody could wear a hat. But I'm thinking they added this in recent years. I'm seeing there were a couple of revisions to the dress code since I left, just two. Maybe because people, let's say, they're losing their hair for reasons that are out of their own control. Maybe they want to cover up their head so they're not showing people that they're losing their hair. Or maybe they have another reason to wear a hat. I don't yeah. know. Bad hair day or something. Well, and I think, too, it's um, yeah, Chloe's pointing this out right now. It's, you know, also certain religions there. There's headdress that people wear and it could be that the school was using hats as like a catch all. Like mm-hmm. you can wear any kind of, you know, headwear that you want. Um, in order to be more inclusive of, you know, various religious beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. So I was pleased to see that. But yeah, I and uh, can't show belly in school. Shirt has to come all the way down. I looked up uh, my the dress code for my old high school, too, because you said that it was pretty easy to find yours and it was easy to find mine as well. Um, it's pretty broad. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's more broader now than it used to be when we were in school. Um, but basically, it just says that students have the right to make individual choices from a wide range of clothing and grooming styles, but they must not present a health or safety hazard or distraction which would interfere with the education process as determined by the school site administration. And it also has a point about like no crop tops and no underwear as outerwear. So like no bras, I guess like no whale tailing thongs, which was a big thing. In the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. oh God. Yeah. yeah. And then just like nothing with writing or pictures um, that are considered to be obscene, uh, vulgar, or like um, like racially insensitive or prejudiced against certain religions and stuff like that. So it's pretty, I feel like, you know, it's a pretty standard dress code. It's nothing crazy. Um, I also remember that I think in middle school they were trying to ban spaghetti straps oh yeah for girls this is like a big thing i guess like bra straps were too uh scandalous for uh middle school boys to behold they couldn't handle it yeah exactly i'm getting a boner that's my my issue with a lot of dress codes is like most of the time the dress code is like specifically tailored to what girls young girls can't wear in school and a lot of times the argument put forth is like well it's too distracting for their male peers it's Mm -hmm. like you know that's such bullshit because you shouldn't like nothing should be like distracting or like tempting to like any male person yeah and then the girls are the ones who get taken out of class to wait for a change of clothes right right while the boys get to stay in class and continue being educated you're making johnny too horny 
Laura, <laughs> please go and put on another layer of clothing. Maybe Johnny should go uh, hop in the pool. His little lonely boner can't handle how hot you are and what you're wearing. Please stop that. <laughs> stop that stuff. Uh, similar on a related note, Michelle said this on our Discord a couple of minutes ago. Women are expected to pay more, have more, make more of an effort, and put up with more shit, e.g. fake pockets. Yeah. yeah that's a succinct way of putting less. it. Yeah. Yeah. Spend more with less money. And don't excite Johnny. <laughs> yeah, Johnny's a fucking freak. <laughs> a fucking horn dog. <laughs> I had an example, and I've talked about my school dress code experiences here on the show, so I won't revisit that. But I did have an experience when I worked at Target when I was in high school. Target, you got to wear the red and khakis. Um, so I was wearing my red polo, and there was nothing remotely scandalous about this polo um, or the way that it fit me. It had a single button at the collar and I never buttoned it because even when I didn't button it, it only came down to like here on my chest. I mean, it it revealed nothing. And most people didn't button theirs either because it was a casual retail environment. One day I'm going to clock out and one of my male supervisors, who honestly wasn't that much older than me, I was like 17, he must have been in his early 20s. As I'm going to clock in, he doesn't even look at me and he just goes, hey, Laura, button up your polo. It's more professional. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Oh, oh, and I just like did it to just like get out of the situation and not have to talk to him anymore. But looking back on it, I'm like, you motherfucker. Like (laughs) there was nothing, there was nothing to be worried about with that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if he told anyone else that they had to button their polos. I'm guessing not. Mm. I was going to say too, Laura, in relation to that, I feel like um, women that are um, larger are often like more scrutinized for their wardrobe. Yep. Um, a really famous example of this, and th- these are not even women that are la- that large, but um, like there was a huge argument online after JLo and Shakira were at the Super Bowl because a lot of conservatives said that their dress was like too obscene and it was like a family program, but they were not wearing anything that somebody much thinner than them or with less curve than them would have been wearing in that same setting as like global pop stars it's just that because of the shape of their bodies it was considered more obscene yeah and i know as somebody that is like larger chested i've also been told a lot like pull your like my uh my mom would always say like pull your shirt up higher even if it wasn't like that low and i think that that also breeds like insecurity even though like you know for the most part nobody's shirt is that low like just kind of like with your button um, one of the coffee shops I worked at, there was actually a, uh, <laughs> there was an incident where two girls showed up wearing the same exact dress, and one of them was told that it was uh, to to go home and change because it was too short, and the other one was like allowed to keep the dress for the day. And honestly, the only difference is that the other one had like a larger ass. And she knew too. She's just like, oh, she like the manager didn't notice because 
you know, um, so-and-so is like, you know, super skinny. And she's like, but I have shorts on underneath. So I don't know why it's that big of a deal. And I was like, everybody was thinking that it was bullshit. But yeah, it's this weird thing where it's like women's bodies are fetishized. Right. And that's why they notice these things. But then they're like, no, that's inappropriate. Put that away. I'm also just thinking, Laura, you're mentioning um, unbuttoning the top of your polo or I'm thinking like spaghetti straps or crop tops. Like if it's hot, sometimes you got to unbutton a little bit to let your shirt breathe. I'm thinking, too, this is I'm also thinking about this through the context of I told I've told you to a couple of times over the years that our high school infamously did not have air conditioning. And there were some hot days and weeks at the beginning and end of the year. And so you got to be able to wear some clothing that can breathe a little bit. I should have wore a crop top in hindsight. You should have. You should have done the morning news in your crop top. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the morning show. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling good. Let my belly hang out (laughs) with this crop top. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to that point, I always thought it was really annoying that like, not that I was going to like run around in um, a sports bra, but it it did feel like very unfair on hot days that like the guys were able to take their shirts off uh, in PE, but girls like couldn't do the same if they wanted to because it was too distracting and you're not allowed to like show midriff, you know, yeah. but it's like four inches of skin versus like an entire like topless upper half kind of right. doesn't make any sense and then have nipples too so you know <laughs> yeah y'all core memory unlocked here i like this just came back to me when i was in kindergarten we were having a field day you know like you would go outside to do a bunch of activities and this i was in florida so it's freaking hot i'm five years old and all of the boys in my class took off their shirts because it was hot and there were like sprinklers on and stuff. So me being a five-year-old, I'm not thinking about this shit. Like I took my shirt off too. <laughs> and I very quickly was reprimanded for this and told to put my shirt back on. And I was like, why? Why do they get to have their shirts off? But I can't. And they were like, because you're a girl. Like that was the answer. Oh my And God. I didn't understand at the time. But like looking back, I'm like, we looked the same at that point in time. Right. <laughs> me and the boys in my class, there was no difference. Me and the boys. So it's it's very interesting. And I wonder how something like that would be handled by 2023 standards. Yeah, it's a good question. All right. Well, that concludes our main topics for today. Coming up in After Dark, Muggle Suck, The Aim Files, Part 3. I had this idea on Friday. I didn't mention it to you on our planning call, it. but Elon is <laughs> doing this dumb thing called the Twitter files. So we That's have the right. AIM files. This is where we dive into our old AOL instant messenger chat logs and we do a reenactment of these conversations between Laura and I. <laughs> they are, we, we've been finding some really good ones. Laura found a good one for us to do this week. And we're also going to talk about, you know, speaking of the past and how things evolve over time. The way we used the word gay back in the day, not something we're proud of in hindsight, but that's that's a word you used in a sort of derogatory fashion back then. Yeah. And you'd be like, that's so gay. Yeah. So we'll talk about that, too, because 
that comes up in this conversation, I believe. I have not read this conversation since I lived it in 2006. <laughs> I purposely did not want to read it. Uh, Pam hasn't read it either. So it's going to be a surprise to both of us, which should be a lot of fun. <laughs> and so that'll be on this week's episode of After Dark, which will be attached to the end of this episode if you pledge $5 or more a month on our Patreon. You can also get Mega Millennial by subscribing to the show through Apple Podcasts. And by the way, whether it's through Apple Podcasts or through Patreon, we do have an annual membership option. So you can pledge a year upfront and you actually get a little discount for committing to a year in advance. So thanks, everybody, no matter how you support us. Now it's time for some recommendations. Y'all, I got to recommend The Last of Us on HBO. Episode one came out this past Sunday. Oh, my God. I've played that game more than once, and I know exactly what happens in the game, but it didn't matter because I was still on the edge of my seat the entire time. It was so good, and it was just amazing to me that they're doing such a faithful adaptation of the game, but it still feels fresh and new and just as scary as playing the game. So you got to check it out. Even if you've never played the game, it's still um, a really amazing first episode of this series. And I'm so excited for the rest of it. Yeah, I'll plus one that. I actually haven't played this game much. I did play for like an hour or two and then I stopped and I just never came back to it. It is a zombie apocalypse show. I grew tired of The Walking Dead like so many other people did. So I was a little hesitant about trying it. But like Laura said, it's pretty damn scary. It's action packed. People love The Last of Us video game because of the story. And people are very optimistic that they're going to nail the story here too. Whether or not you've played the game, I also have heard that there are going to be some differences to keep players surprised. So that's nice. Laura, I don't know if you saw the um, shot-by-shot comparison between the video game and the HBO series, IGN compared moments. It's like, it's really good. They adapted it really well. It's so So good. I mean, especially the scene where they're in the truck in episode one. That was amazing. Like that, I was like, oh my God, I'm playing the fucking game right now. (laughs) Like, it's just like it. That was cinematic, the way the camera was moving back and forth. And like, I was really impressed just from like a cinematography standpoint. So yeah, I'm, I'm, look, this looks like it's going to be another huge show for HBO, new appointment television. So uh, I'm looking forward to being part of this water cooler talk. I also really enjoyed it, but I wanted to uh, add an extra bonus recommendation in here too. So it wasn't just like all of us talking about the same thing. Um, uh, We were talking about peanut butter in How She Get Out, which is part of the (laughs) riveting content you get if, you know, Mm. you pledge over on Patreon. And I was telling Andrew about PB2, which is powdered peanut butter. So he was saying he felt a little guilty about eating regular peanut butter. And I know that Laura enjoys this as well. I actually really love the powdered peanut butter for popping into smoothies. So if you're a smoothie drinker and you're just trying to get a little bit more protein in there and you haven't checked this out, I would check it out. They have different flavors. Um, The chocolate peanut butter is really nice. And I bet it would go really well with like some kind of banana based smoothie too. So I love peanut butter and banana. Check that out if you're 
looking for that. And to tie it to The Last of Us, if you're ever in a zombie apocalypse, this is a powdered product. So hopefully it'll last a really long time for you. There you go. And you just mix it up with water, too. So you don't have to worry about having any other crazy ingredients at home. All right. Well, make sure you are following Millennial in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And do leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you have any feedback, you can email millennialshow at gmail.com or you can use the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. And last but not least, follow us on social media. We're Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And then over on TikTok, we are Millennial Pod. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye, Bye. everyone. Bye.